Bonjour, bonjour and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no fluff, actionable marketing podcast for marketers, marketing consultants, founders and techies who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to develop a side project while working full time and generate some serious cash out of it, but it just takes, just going to take you a few years to do so. Uh, so my guest today has been running a side project for five years before quitting his full time job. And when he left, the revenue of his side project was higher than his actual salary. So he went from $11,000 first year to $490,000 this year, if I'm not mistaken. So my guest today has been doing search engine optimization, SEO for more than 10 years. He was previously managed SEO at PayPal and Airbnb. He now runs ClickMinded, which is a digital marketing training platform for marketers and entrepreneurs. Super happy to have you, Tommy Griffith, on board. Welcome. Louis, bonjour, bonjour. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. So I think I've teased enough of the story in the intro for people to know straight away what the fuck have you managed to do this. So maybe we can take a step back and perhaps you can tell a bit of the story from when you were in San Francisco working for Airbnb. Why did you start this SEO course and where did it lead you to? Yeah, sure. So um, I think the early, early beginnings was everything is sort of rooted in the fact that my first business failed. I was one of these guys, graduated university in 2008 and picked up a copy of Four Hour Workweek. Were you, or was this sort of the beginning yes. of your journey as well? I did pick this yeah. copy as well. Right. So I think this was the, the, the book that was a catalyst for a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of internet marketers, right? And yeah, it's read the book, read it in a hammock, <laughs> create, created my first, my first idea was was an ebook. I wrote this really dorky ebook. I started selling it for ten dollars. No one bought it. I dropped the price to five dollars. No one bought it. And then I increased the price to forty-seven dollars, and two hundred fifty people bought it. Which is just one of these fascinating kind of marketing tests around how people value things, right? And and it was just the catalyst for how do I get this to rank number one in in Google. That got me into search engine optimization. I really liked it, and I started a business with a friend of mine that failed miserably. We went into a market that I didn't know anything about. I spent a year on it. I borrowed money from family and friends, and it just all failed. It all just completely failed. Failed. And I ended up, you know, I was traveling at the time and I ended up coming back to the US with a bunch of debt. I was one of these people that graduated university with no debt. My parents, I was blessed enough to, to, for my parents to cover university. And I put myself into debt afterwards trying to start this, this business. So came back home a loser, you know, didn't have a bunch of debt, was trying to find a job, but I had sort of failed in a way where I'd, I had suddenly taught myself SEO and paid ads for a year. And ended up getting a job at, at PayPal. So moved to San Francisco, got this job managing search engine optimization at PayPal. And while I was there, it was like, okay, I'm still in all this debt from family and friends. I have to figure out a way to to pay it back. How right? much so debt are we talking about? I mean, it, it's all relative, right? And so for me, it was a lot. For a lot of people, it would be child's play. But it was about about twenty five thousand. A lot of money. Which is when you're young and twenty and you had no debt you know, a year before it, <laughs> all of a sudden you seem pretty stupid, right? So, so it was like, okay, even though I have a salary now and I can pay rent, it wasn't a lot and San Francisco is expensive. So I needed to, you know, make it happen. And so the whole concept started because I taught, I had to teach a class to a bunch of my colleagues at PayPal on search engine optimization and a, a physical class, like a two hour class, got a lot of really good feedback on it, that it was, was interesting, was helpful, it made a boring topic interesting. And I decided to start teaching startups that on the weekends. So I'd rented out a co-working space and on Saturday mornings from 9am to 5pm, I would, it's kind of all you can SEO. So show up, I would prepare a bunch for the for the users before they would come in and we would just nerd out on search engine optimization all day, kind of in person from nine to five. And yeah, I mean, thanks for, for stopping by the way, because I was expecting you to tell more of the story, but again, let's, let's take a step back on what you've done already. So you've, you've, you've launched your first business, which was an ebook. You've launched another one with the co-founder, right? That failed as well. That's right. right? Yep. You came back with $25,000 back to the US uh, in debt and you didn't have debt before. So yes, it's, you went from zero to 25,000, which is the definition of exponential, which is the definition of infinite debt compared to what you had before, really. So uh, you started the PayPal job 
And you learned on the go, right? Did you have any, you graduated, uh, you graduated, sorry, from college. What was your degree actually? Yeah, studied finance. Yeah, so nothing to do with SEO, right? So you learned on on the spot, right? You learn from experiences, you learn online and all of that. And then you were able to teach it in PayPal. And that's when you started to realize that actually you might, you, you were quite good at teaching stuff. People seem to enjoy the way you were explaining SEO. And that made you think, okay, shit, I can actually make money out of it, right? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it was really more that I enjoyed it at, at first. And and there was kind of while this was all happening, like cl teaching click, it wasn't like this aha moment and I finally found it. Like while I was teaching search engine optimization, I probably had four other ideas going as well, right? The way I like to, I talk to friends about this all the time, like, you know, you're, you're kind of a serial idea guy or entrepreneur based on how many dead domains you have in your web hosting account, right? Like, and, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to this. My, my dream host hosting account is just a graveyard of bad ideas, right? <laughs> like, so I wasn't sure yet what it was going to be. I had an iPhone app developer lead generation site. I was working on all kinds of, of stuff. Some of it were good. It were okay ideas. Some of them were terrible ideas, but it was sort of like, it was more desperation driving all of it. But yeah, the teaching was, was one of these things where it was just this weird combination of like, okay, I taught myself SEO over the last two years. I was now managing SEO, one of the biggest websites in the world. And I was suddenly able to teach it in a way where people would like, finally got it or finally not bored by it. And then it just sort of started to, to take off from there. So take me to the next step of the journey up until today. I know it's a long story to tell in a few sentences, but you turned that into meetups. You started to, as you said, you started to, to generate some, some momentum this way. You're starting to teach it in during weekends for startups. And then what happened? Yeah. So the first kind of hundred users and actually one of my favorite tactics for when you're just getting started and you have no idea how to get rolling is meetup.com. I think this is one of the most underrated acquisition channels for, for first users because they do so much of the work for you, right? So you can sign up for meetup as an organizer. I think it's $15 for three months and you pick your topic, you pick your city and what they'll do is they'll email everyone in that city that they think uh, has an interest in that topic. And so I started the San Francisco SEO meetup in 2011 or 2012. Meetup spams everyone on the list. And I suddenly had a hundred something people interested in SEO in San Francisco within like three days, right? Then I do, you know, send out an email saying, hey, I'm going to teach a free class. Feel free to come by. People give feedback. They become sort of the first users. I hold one or two happy hours at a bar and people sort of, you know, end up showing up. This ends up being an interesting tactic because especially a lot of internet marketers, they don't want to leave their basement. They don't want to go out into the real world, right? And a lot of people, they want to write the automated solution for it first. So they want to spam a bunch of people for it first. But like that little, I know the word moat is so cliche, but that little moat around like, I have to go out into the real world and shake hands with people. It's just enough that nobody does it, right? So I was in this situation where it, it, it didn't happen on purpose, but I started offline. Um, and it only happened because we online courses just weren't as easy and as amazing as they are today. We really are in an online learning kind of renaissance right now. It's just easy, way easier to get an online course up now than it was in 2012. But I started offline. I started doing meetups and physically teaching in person. And I'll, I'll probably talk more about it later. But yeah, the, all of the courses that I was sort of competing with on, on Udemy, which was the first platform I started on in 2012, they were all guys like talking into their laptops from their basement. Right. And when I was teaching the course in person, you know, and you teach something that doesn't connect or kind of sucks or that joke wasn't funny or something that's really good. Like you see that feedback on people's faces right away. Right. So I'd actually recommend this, even if you're a totally digital product is doing stuff that's offline first, doing something like meetup because meetup was I mean, $15 to get your first hundred email addresses is like a dream, a dream come true. Right. And so, yeah, started with meetup, started with physical classes and it got to the point where the money, the, like the, the revenue just made absolutely no sense. I was doing revenue share with these co-working spaces. And when people would sign up, just one individual person would sign up for a Saturday. It made absolutely no sense. And there was this horrible moment where I was physically teaching a class in person with someone who, who asked if I, they could come in on my birthday. So it was like my 26th or 25th birthday. This guy came in, he asked to, to do a class. It was just me and him. I spent all this time preparing for it. And after the revenue share, the Eventbrite fees, the PayPal, 
PayPal fees, the, the printed material fees. I would buy the guy lunch. I did out all the calculation and I was making $12 an hour and San Francisco minimum wage was $13 an hour. Right. <laughs> so ClickMind, it was like the most miserable company you could possibly work for in San Francisco. And I had to, to, to change. Right. It ended up being just kind of right place, right time with this online learning renaissance. And, uh, you know, Udemy had just started, and I ended up taking this class I had been teaching for a few months in person, doing my first version of Udemy, and then everything took off from there. And at this stage, so you worked, you managed to find the time to work full time for like Airbnb. So you moved from PayPal to Airbnb. You were still working on it on the side. And this is when you started to make serious money. But I don't want to take a step back and I don't want to dive into too much because we we're going to go into deep, deeper details in the next few minutes. But you really... I know it's surprising to say, because as you said, in the, in the internet marketing world, people are almost scared of meeting their neighbors, but like, it's just the basics of human relationship, what you just described, right? Like you, you just meet people, you share stuff, you teach stuff, you see how they react, you get feedback, you move on, you do it better instead of the other way, which is like, as you said, you, you're in your, in your basement, you hide yourself from people, you don't really get any feedback. You just try to automate everything. But at the end of the day, people are people, people like to meet others, to shake hands, to drink, uh, to share drinks together. That's how you get the best feedback at the start, right? So you had solid, solid foundations to work from, and then you knew you could scale that better by moving from a channel that was offline to, to being online. So when did you decide to move from, I have a full-time job in a good company, because I suppose Airbnb is quite good, to I want to work full-time on this now? When did you decide? What was the trigger? Yeah, so... Um and, and that's a really good point around the human relationship stuff, because you're right. I think a lot of it, at least even if it is possible to do in your basement, I think I accelerated the whole process way faster because of what you just said. At the end of the day, we're all humans. We all we all want that. Right. So the the decision matrix on that on, on when to leave was was tough. So, yeah, I was at PayPal, was working on it, ended up switching over to Airbnb and the entire time I was at Airbnb was still sort of working on it, working on it. And my, my decision calculus for leaving was a little weird because, uh, I mean, it's going to sound like I'm just, I've totally drank in the Kool-Aid on Airbnb's propaganda, which I have, but Airbnb really was an awesome place to be. Right. I mean, it was the best job I'd, I'd ever had. I was working with the best colleagues I'd ever had. The first week I joined, like we were, they were, we were subpoenaed by the state of New York. And the last week I joined, we, I worked on a Super Bowl commercial and Beyonce was staying in one. It was just like a crazy time to be at the company. Right. And so I just sort of felt like I wasn't really done yet. Uh, but I was also scared. I was also had fresh wounds from the old company. I mean, I put myself into debt with a friend. I'd done something dumb. I'd worked on something that was dumb. And so I had a really good job. I liked that. I, that I wasn't, didn't feel like I was done yet. And I know a lot of people, m maybe people that are listening and they're at their job and they're thinking about trying to leave. And it's like, they're in cubicle jail. And that's sort of what a lot of people think, like, how do I get out immediately? But for me, it was a little, a little different, um, because I, I liked my job, but also the job was really helpful to the side project. Um, there's this, this term, I have it here and I wrote it, um, in the post we were talking about earlier called exit velocity. Mm -hmm. This guy, yeah, Dan Andrews, um, from tropical MBA, he, he coined this term for people that are starting side projects. I really like, I have the definition here. I'll just read it quickly. Exit velocity is the amount of professional and entrepreneurial momentum you have when quitting your job and starting a new venture. Momentum can come from a variety of sources, investment, capital, experience, anchor clients, industry knowledge and connections, AKA unfair advantage. So that was sort of the, the, the thing was like, okay, we were using ClickMinded to train up new members of the growth team at Airbnb, data scientists, engineers, and designers that were using SEO. I was making the product better, but also like I was the SEO guy from Airbnb. Right. And so all of that was sort of compounding into making it better. And I actually really highly recommend that if you're thinking about this and you're making this decision, a lot of people, you know, it's not impossible, but I, you see a lot of people like they're a lawyer and then their side project is like selling CrossFit jump ropes, right? Or it's something just like totally unrelated. And what I found is if you're, if you're working for someone else and you love what you do and you're getting paid to do something every day and you can compound any of that into what you do next, you hit the ground running. Like I, I like to think about it like a cannon. You can either like shoot to can shoot out of the cannon horizontally or everything you can do at work, you can tilt it up a little bit more and get more of that 
Yeah, Dan calls it exit velocity. So that was part of it was I was sort of making the product way, way, way better while, while getting paid at an awesome company that had all the things you think about when you think about these obnoxious, all-inclusive resort uh, Silicon Valley companies, right? The breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the beanbags and the MacBooks and, the <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But I really did. I wanted to leave. I, I wanted to, I, I felt like I had failed at the beginning as an entrepreneur and I wanted to give it a shot again. I was also personally just so over the city of San Francisco. I love my job, but I just was so annoyed with the city. I was so ready to leave and I love to travel. I was eventually ready to go and yeah, did the four years at Airbnb and then uh, once I left, I ended up really doing myself a disservice because I sort of over romanticized how it would go. You know, I thought my life as an entrepreneur would be amazing. I was big on this. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, like digital nomad kind of movement, right? People are, you know, on the beach in Bali with coconuts in the, in the MacBook. And I just had, I had consumed too much of that. I had given myself way too, too long of a runway to think about that. And so like surprise, surprise, once I left and everything didn't go perfectly, my expectations were just way too high. Yeah. And I was like suddenly, suddenly miserable. So you, you know? moved to, you moved to Bali, right? So you, you, That's you right. you've really followed the cliche of like the digital nomadism with those Instagram picture on the beach. Like this is what you picture for you, right? You say like, I could run this digital training business from Bali, leaving the city, city of San Francisco, make a good living out of it and all be happy, right? I was every stereotype you're imagining now. I was exactly as obnoxious as you think. <laughs> no, I appreciate you sharing that very transparently and admitting all of that because not a lot of people would do that. So thanks for doing this because I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this right now and thinking of it, it might actually put you off of doing it because yes, there's some mistake to avoid. But I want to just repeat something that you've said, which I think deserves to be where we need to pause and just reflect on this. From the first iteration of the product, of the first iteration of your side project, to the time where you actually left, it took you five years, right? So it's 260 weeks. It's like 260 Mondays, 260 Tuesdays. I mean, you've got the picture, right? In the world where we're living right now, where people expect quick buck and, you know, to, to launch something and next week to be successful, this is testament to how, what it really fucking takes, right? To build something. It takes, it took you five years. Some people it takes 15, 20 fucking years because it takes time to build credibility, takes time to get a good product, to get feedback, to improve it. Just takes fucking time, right? Everything takes time. So I think this is a very good lesson for people listening and feeling that, you know, it's not good enough yet or they're, they're being impatient. That's what it takes. Sometimes it can take five, sometimes it can take 10. Just crazy out there. So take your time, right? Um, so, Okay. You, you left and you at the time had already generated. So the revenue you were making from the side project was a bit higher than your salary when you decided to leave, which is fucking huge, right? I mean, that's already. So where was most of the money coming from? Was it coming from internally from Airbnb, people paying you from inside or was it from where was the money coming from? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Oh, so yeah. So in terms of revenue, no, never charged Airbnb, never charged PayPal. That was always, that was always free. It was just like, I was already forcing my new colleagues to watch a six hour course with me. That was enough pain and misery. Right. But no, yeah. All, I mean, of course, the majority of our, our revenue comes from SEO, right? I'm teaching SEO better be, <laughs> better be good at it. But other things as well was partnerships. And I think this is something that a lot of people mess up in the early days, which is I was very liberal with giving away a lot of revenue in the beginning. So co-working spaces that took a big revenue share. We did partnerships with um, AppSumo, which is uh, you know, uh, email, kind of a daily deals list, Groupon for nerds, Groupon for digital products kind of thing. They take a big revenue share. And this continually happened in the early days was opportunities would come up. It would be really high revenue share for the other partner, but I'd had a very low user base and I'd just say yes to everything. And the feedback a lot I have, especially kind of the, to, just to be frank, the entrepreneur crowd or people that haven't built a big email list or user base, they get really tied up and caught up on the revenue share numbers. And they would say, how much are you giving away? And then you tell them and they say, that's too much. That's a bad idea. Why are you doing that co-working space? I have a friend who has a basement or I have a friend who has an email list. And they don't understand that. Like, I, I didn't know this at the time. I thought maybe at the beginning I was just being humble, but at the reality, the reality was I, it was one of the things I did well, which is I understood that like everything is just leveraged to the next 
next level. And so it just, look, I, especially when you have a digital product that scales to infinity. Right. Um, and so that kept happening. I kept doing these partnership deals that ended up adding more and more and more users. And I kept giving away a lot of the revenue and everyone said, that's a bad deal. That's a bad deal. That's a bad deal. And then all of a sudden I had a thousand paid users. Right. <laughs> and so that becomes a ton of leverage later on. So a lot of the beginning, what you alluded to earlier, which was ha- taking the time to do it. And it's also super important to, to enjoy this because I hate to say this it's probably, you probably ought to buckle up. It's probably going to be a long road. <laughs> A lot of that, you can take those bad deals in succession over and over and over again if your time horizon's really long, right? And so, like, I, I, I made a bunch of be- quote-unquote bad deals where I gave away too much revenue, and then all of a sudden, you know, we had 1,000 users, and then 5,000 users, and then 10,000 10, users, and, and, and then you have real leverage. So, yeah, th- those are the early users, and eventually did, made that decision to leave, did all the cliches around, around wanting to leave, and then once I ended up ultimately leaving... It was just miserable. My reality did not meet the Instagram feed, to say the least. And I ended up just in this bizarre situation. I moved to Bali. I'd given away everything I I owned. I got rid of my apartment. I ended up, um, my first week in Bali, I was robbed by the police the first day. I had food poisoning the the third day. I filmed the new course, invested $15,000 to film every new version of the the course. Yeah, Sorry, left that part out. We were just an SEO course and decided to expand to seven new courses. That was the whole impetus for leaving, right? Go head to head with digital marketing courses and boot camps and universities that are teaching this stuff and expand to seven new ones. Invested $15,000 in that. I'm sitting in Bali, just gotten robbed, just had food poisoning. So yeah, the rain's hitting the roof on this warehouse we I'd rented to film all the new content and it ruined all the audio. And so I'm sitting in Bali, you know, I had just been robbed by the police. I had food poisoning. I'm throwing up everywhere. I'm clutching this external hard drive with $15,000 worth of garbage footage that I just paid for. And I'm thinking about my past life at Airbnb you know, where I had unlimited breakfast, lunch, and dinner and the bean bags and the MacBooks and like these cool people and this cool company. And I'm just sitting up there looking at the sky, like just thinking, what am I doing? You know, why am I here? Why, why did I take the bait on this Instagram life? And it was just really, really kind of a miserable start. And I think a lot of the big problem, like I said before, was I had set my expectations so insanely high that they could have just never been met. And thanks again for sharing all of this. So yeah, you probably felt quite shitty there in Bali, but I think you bounced back uh, pretty well after that. So you had 15 gig worth of almost useless video. And what did you decide to do? Like you didn't obviously give up and just send an email to the HR at airbnb.com saying, take me back. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was, um, I think that's also part of the, it depends on how you're wired, right? But some people, they need to be very comfortable and set in their ways in order to, to, to try something a little crazy. For me, it ends up just being, I, I seem to perform the best when my back is against the wall. Um, and when you, when I like don't really have any other options and that's, that's a whole kind of burning the boats cliche, right? Like you have to give yourself no other choice, but to, but to try and win. I did something that's very controversial, which is, um, I brought on later on that year and throughout this, I brought on a co-founder year four, year five into a lifestyle business. And, uh, it's mo this is just like all the other partnership things back in the day. Everyone told me I'm dumb and, uh, and that I shouldn't be doing this and it it doesn't make any sense. And, And they're right. It doesn't make any sense on paper. It doesn't make any sense. I got the business to a point of about 160,000 a year. And I brought on a co-founder where I just wasn't able to take it to the next level. I wasn't good enough. And, um, I had, you know, I, I was a teacher at a university in San Francisco for, for four years as a a taught in a summer elective on digital marketing. And I'd always taken on apprentice an apprentice every year. And one of the apprentices I had was amazing. He's really, really, um, really good at what he did, Eduardo. And I ended up emailing him out of complete desperation. He had moved from San Francisco to New York. And I just said, Hey dude, I have $15,000 worth of footage. This is the plan. This is what I want to do. I suck. <laughs> I can't, I can't get this to the next level. Um, what do you think? Are you interested in working on this? And we ended up, um, 
sizing it out where he was working full time at his job and he started working on ClickMinded as a side project again for kind of the second time. First he did it as an apprenticeship and then he did it as more of a, um, we were sort of working together kind of thing. And we said, here's a plan. If we can launch this and get it to this certain revenue level, I'll leave, I'll quit my job and, uh, and I'll, and I'm in. And, uh, the way I sized it up with him, actually some people were interested in this, uh, and a lot of people worry again, everyone worries about the percentage and how much you're going to give away. But for me, it was so comically obvious that we needed to get to the next level and I couldn't get there alone. Right. So once everything worked and we were sort of negotiating, I just said, okay, man, do you want, I'll give you three options. Do you want like high salary, low, little to no equity, medium salary with medium equity or like no salary at all and all equity. And he just, without even hesitating was like all equity, I'm in, let's do this. Right. And it's just like exactly what you want to hear when you're going to war with someone. You know what I mean? How much um, equity did you give him? Probably can't talk about that without talking to him. Right. So I'll probably hold off on that one. All right, give me a, give me a, <laughs> give me a bracket. Uh, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. So right. I'll, Yeah, I'll probably hold off on that if that's cool. But the point was it had sort of succeeded to the business had succeeded to a certain degree. And most people's advice is like bring on hourly contractors, hold on to it for dear life. But it's really hard to find someone who's willing to to you know, work on a really tough problem for multiple years. It's not like bring on a consultant for five hours and have them fix your funnel. It's like quit your job, leave the country, you know, and work on this for 40 hours a week with someone. And so that, that ended up being the catalyst. We, we turned it all around from there. We ended up doing a sort of Kickstarter style presale where we, we, the, the content wasn't quite ready yet. And we, we pre-sold to the list and we ended up Uh, doing this massive sort of launch for this pre-sale and made $113,000 in seven days. And how, much of, that's it. how much of an email list do you have then? At the time, it was probably 20, 20 to 25K, somewhere around there. Right. So 20 to 25,000 email subscribers. Email subscribers, correct. And yeah. from then, like you basically did, yeah, I like the way you describe it via Kickstarter. You pre-sold the course, you didn't have it even mm. done. <clears throat> You pre-sold it, you sent around 18 emails, you set up two webinars, and like making sure that people were constantly in the know about what was about to happen. And from right. those 18 emails, you generated 113,000. But again, and we'll dive into how to do it or how you would do it differently next time in the next few minutes. What I want to emphasize here is, yes, if you're listening to this right now and you think, okay, shit, 18 emails, 110,000, it's fucking amazing. I want to do the same. Again, how long did it take you to build this trust and credibility for these 25,000 people? Like five or six fucking years at this stage, right? So it was five years to build that email list. Yes. So five years of building 25,000, 5,000 a year. That's like less than 20 a day for five fucking years, right? <laughs> And one thing that is not that is difficult to measure here and that I'm always struggling with, but I know it always works uh, in our favor is the trust that you had, right? When, when you sign up to an email list and you've been emailed and you stay on this email list for three, four, five years, guess what? You're way, way, way more likely to trust the other person on the other side. You know that they are sticking around. You are way more likely to buy anything uh, instead of just you know, signing up and tomorrow you're being pitched something. So it just, it just takes time again. And this is what well, your story is testament to that. So now in 2019, you're going to reach almost $500,000 in revenue, right? Something like that. How many people work with you now, nowadays on this course on the, on click minded? Yeah. And, and that's a really good point around the trust stuff. You're, you're hundred percent right. We've, we've had a, we care about this a lot with our list and, and we, we, um, we are very cognizant of the fact that yeah, people will bail if you just pitch them right away. Yeah. Right now that's what we're on pace for. We're, we're on pace for about 490,000 this year. We have uh, five staff to only two are full time, me and my co-founder. And then three are sort of contracting out between it sort of ranges between five and 40 hours a week, depends on, on what's going on. Nice. Okay. So I've been dying to ask you this question from the start, but I really wanted everyone to understand the, the full context. So imagine now that you know all of those stuff that you know, you've, you've created three businesses at this stage, if I'm following properly, one that succeeded, two that didn't. You have good experience in, in big companies like PayPal, Airbnb. 
you've made a, your fair share of mistakes. Uh, you've shared a few lessons already. But if I give you, let's say, $1,000 tomorrow and you have to launch something new, like a new business from scratch, and you have to make 10 grand, 20 grand out of it within three to six months, right? Um, you can't use your name. You can't use your network, right? So you can't use this email list that you've, that you've built so far. How would you do it? you know, from the start? Like what lessons have you learned that will help you to do this again? This is a great question because you can't run the simulation twice, right? And so, yeah, trying to do it again, knowing what you know, but not using the any credibility you've built up is a great question. And it does, it gets at the truth of, of what works or not. I mean, tactically, we can talk about like individual tactics. I don't know how interesting that is. I really like this idea and I think it's incredibly underrated of partnerships and it can come in a lot of different ways, right? So I was just constantly, and a lot of SEO is this as well, but I was just constantly barnacling onto other platforms and ecosystems and, and sucking the life out of them. Right. And the, in the SEO example, Okay, <laughs> it's like in, in, in a good way. Um, it's like SEO is an example. It's a platform you sort of optimize for it to get to. But even within SEO, there's called something called barnacle SEO. That's when you get a Quora answer at the top of Quora. That's when Quora is already ranking number one, and you 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 have that content or a Yahoo Answers answer, and you're already that content, right? But it, it's in other things as well, like email list partnerships, Meetup.com as as partnerships. All these other like ecosystems exist. And what a lot of people do is they move into an ecosystem and they start to try and generate revenue right away. And my move was always to move into an ecosystem, try and deliver a bunch of value and then catapult into the next ecosystem. Right. So like the first ecosystem after I'd failed was, would just work like just working at PayPal and that catapulted into having brand for the course. And then that catapulted into like the meetup group and then the AppSumo partnership and the coworking partnership. And I think the, the th okay, I had a thousand dollars. I had to start over. I couldn't use my name again. And I had to create $10,000 in three to six months. I would define the product and then spend most, spend most of that money barnacling myself onto other people's platforms and ecosystems and giving them the vast majority of the revenue, right? And acquiring, sort of acquiring the users um, along the way. Because I just, the, the reason why I like it is because people get so caught up in the revenue share and they're so caught up about giving a little bit away that they don't do it. And it ends up being a, an advantage, I guess. So I like your answer because you didn't want to go into the tactics, which which is usually what people do. But I, I and, and I think it was the right answer for this because strategically speaking, what you're mentioning here is again relationship building 101, right? It's just just like talk to people who have bigger networks who who are being trusted by their audience. If you don't have an audience, you can't build it from scratch. I mean, just talking a small example, my podcast, right? I've started from day one interviewing people who are way smarter than me, who have a bigger audience than me. I knew it would be a mistake to launch a podcast on my own and just fucking share shit about marketing. Who knows about me? Who would trust me? No one, right? So I knew that it would be way more interesting to connect with others. And this is why podcasts work really well nowadays, even more than before. This is why so-called online summits work really well. This is why conferences work really well. This is why email lists Sharing your email list with someone works really well. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I don't want to go too much into how you would pick a product because I think we've talked about it a few times in a podcast before, and I'm not sure this is the most interesting part of what you know. But the partnership part, let's dive into that a bit more. So let's say you have nothing. Let's say you have a course to sell that is pretty good. Let's say you have some pedigree behind you, not a massive credibility, but let's say you have something to share. How do you go about finding, let's say, a partner and do a 2080 revenue share deal with them? Like, how do you go about finding this next partner uh, in still in the same scenario where you're not really well known and you don't have a lot of money? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And I would actually back up a little bit and give a little bit of a uh, part of when people are starting these side projects, a big mistake I see is part somewhat related to the exit velocity stuff we were talking about earlier, but a lot of people go into a category that they're completely clueless about. And one of the massive advantages that you have when you, when you are going into a sort of network or industry where you've been doing it for a while is you, you should, it should feel more like a hobby than a, than, than, than work. Right. And I mean, I think your podcast is a good example of this. You enjoy doing this. You like this stuff. It's very, it's, 
very clear in your, even in your copy on your, on your page that you hate shitty marketing. Right. And so like, um, it should be, I guess I could, you know, give tactical specifics, like how to use advanced search operators to find things or look at people's link profiles. But, but a way, a way better idea is if you're working in an industry you love, you should, you should, you know, all of these sites that you should be on should already be in your bookmarks. Right. And you, they should already be stuff that you're visiting every day. They should already be natural connections that you have. Right. So yeah, there are tactics to, you know, find that podcast, find that meetup group, whatever. But the reality is it should be so intuitive to you that you should, these should be the sites you're visiting every day. And that's that, I guess it's a kind of a BS answer of coughing up, but, but it should be very obvious of who your partnership should be. If you're doing something that you have actual pedigree in. Yeah. And I very much like that because you can see a lot of people entering a space. They don't have no fucking clue about, they don't necessarily like it. It's just, you got to bail out after six, nine, 12 months. Right. So Following what naturally drives you, what naturally energizes you is a tough thing to do for certain people. They don't necessarily know themselves that well. Uh, a book that I've mentioned a few times in this uh, podcast that I think is really helpful is called The Unique Ability, which enables you to basically discover what you're good at from the perspective of other people, not your own self. So you send an email, you ask, what do you think is my unique ability? People come back to you and overwhelmingly people come back with the same type of answer. And that helps you to guide you to say, oh, shit, I'm actually that good at, I don't know, marketing. Like, fuck, I need to stop fucking around this gardening side project I have and just maybe double down on it, right? <laughs> so unique ability would be things that energize you and things you're very good at, right? Uh, you can be very good at something that and it doesn't energize you. In this case, it's a strength, not necessarily unique ability. So again, this is, I think it covers what you mentioned there. And I, I very much like the fact that you mentioned it. So in the scenario where you actually have a side gig or something that you've developed on the side that is related to your work or what you're good at, your expertise, you don't have to create a new network. In the scenario that, okay, you have a few sites that you're good at, uh, that you know your readers will enjoy or the people who take your course will enjoy because you've been reading it for years. Um, you've said that you would give most of their revenue, most of the revenue to them. Um, what do you mean by that? Like, what's the percentage? I know it's not a finite answer, but like a finite answer, but what is the, what do you usually like to do from the start? Like, what's the percentage there? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not that I preferred it. It's that they come back to me and say, here's what's happening because okay. they're the big, they're, <laughs> they're big the big fish big and I'm the little guy. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But yeah, to give you a ballpark, it usually ends up be, being between 50 to 75%. Um, you're giving away 50 to 75%. And for most people that's treason, right? They just, they refuse to do that because it's, um, they don't put a value on the lifetime of the user. And those, those, I mean, people say this all the time. We are on AppSumo deal. We've done now seven deals with AppSumo. We're going to do another one later this year, the eighth or ninth deal. AppSumo is famously relentless about this. They take a 50 to 80% revenue cut. It's different every year. One third of our users have come from AppSumo. And we have cross-sold, upsold, added those email lists. We get credibility from that in a ton of different ways. And every single year, people say you're getting ripped off. And every single year, I just keep laughing <laughs> because, like, it's just a, it's a. They're really good at what they do. They have a million active, engaged, interested entrepreneurs and digital marketers. And unfortunately, basically whatever they say, we we accept. And it ends up still being being worth it for both of us. So um, they're great at what they do. We love partnering with them. They're absolutely relentless in the numbers, but, but it um, it makes sense. And we're still continuing to, to work with them today. I thought email marketing was dead in 2019, huh? So again, like coming back to first principles on the things that always will work, I mean, at least in the next 20, 50 years, building, a, building trust with an audience where you own the channel. So instead of relying on the third party, like fucking Twitter or Facebook, where you don't own those people, email is still the only thing that you fucking own. Like you can, you own their email address. They've opted in. They've said, yes, I do want to hear from these people. So you own this email list. No one can take it away from you. And this is an asset that this is why so many people mention the same thing over and over and over again, because it just basis, it works. And what you mentioned makes a lot of sense as well. So ranting, Basically, you talked about lifetime value, and this is a concept that is important here, right? It's not about the first deal you get out of those people. It's about the other deals, the new products that you relaunch. It's about them joining the email list, talking to their friends about it. It's about them buying your second, your third, your fourth, your fifth product. Because if your first product is really good, then you should be able to sell the next one. 
at a much higher margin. This has been your strategy, right? Exactly. And just the, the nature of, you know, how you optimize and grow your business from like from, you know, 10,000 paid users to 100,000 paid users to a million paid users. It's just so different from how you get your first one to a hundred, right? Or one to a thousand. And you just need fundamentally different tactics. And you're, in my opinion, it's much more advantageous to focus on the users, the value, the reputation, and the long-term prospects and not worry as much about the revenue. And this is really hard for people to do, especially after you just created a great product, you have product market fit. People don't want give, to give it away. They want to they get the early traction. And I 100% understand it. But I found a lot of... Um, a lot of value in doing that in, 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 in working that way. And you're hundred percent right with the, with the email list. You know, I'm an SEO guy. I'm very biased towards SEO, but our business is entirely run on our email list now. I mean, hundred percent it's everything goes through our email list. And it's the difference between a lot of people don't understand this. It's the difference between web applications and web protocols, right? Right. Like, like Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, these are platforms and these are applications. These are, these are companies with privacy policies and shareholders and things like that. But email is an, is a web protocol, right? It's not an application. It's the SMTP protocol. And so email doesn't go away. You don't get voided by terms of service unless people fundamentally stop using email, right? And so the only way that people, someone can take away your email list is if everyone stops using email. You can see the moment in time a lot of companies demand media. You can look at their stock price and you can see when the Google algorithm update hit and that platform messed them up. Um, Zynga, you can see in their public stock price the, the day that Facebook changed their newsfeed algorithm so you couldn't get Farmville spam invites anymore and you can see the stock price drop, right? <laughs> but you're, you're not going to be able to see that with email. And so um, it is the right now it is the great equalizer and it's super cliche, build the list, the money's in the list, all those cliches around the email list. But, um, you know, it's 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 worked for me. Yeah. And it's worked for you, worked for others. And it's just a, it's just a, a thing that for the last two years, guests have been saying that it just makes sense. And I like the fact that you're making the difference between a platform like Facebook and a protocol like email. Thanks for saying that because I wouldn't have said it better myself. This is why email is important. And email relies on, as you said, the fact that many, many, I mean, billions of people are using it. At this at, To this day, there's not a protocol that are being used that much, apart from maybe SMS, even though you can argue that now it's on platform like WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. Um, so apart from this partnership stuff, um, again, going back to the initial question of the $1,000, would you say this is the the most important thing just to partner up with other audiences, people that have bigger, bigger subscribers or like uh, a bigger audience, or would you say there's something else that you would also use to your advantage? In terms of user acquisition or in terms of creating the product? In or? terms of getting the revenue that you need within six months, like in terms of making some wave. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of that type of a timeline, I mean, my, my first, like I would, I probably, <laughs> I think it's easy to argue that I wouldn't be able to make that kind of money in that timeline. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the example of, of, of the tortoise. I'm not the hare. I did this the slowest way possible, man. I mean, I think you could set up a lemonade stand and make revenue faster than the way I did it. Right. So, but there was, there's just, there's a lot of other things going on and I'm not going to sit here and say that this is the right way to do it. I'm just saying that it's the way I did it. There's probably faster ways to do it. You, there's probably 17 year olds now that know how to spin up a Facebook ad campaign, you know, targeted specifically at Serbia that'll blow up or something like that. Right. Uh, I don't know, but I just, <laughs> The way I went about it was incredibly slow through partnerships, really honing in on my product by doing taking it offline first and also being personally super motivated by it. That's I think the only way, reason why it lasted was that even if it didn't work, I probably would have stepped still kept working on it because I enjoyed it. I like teaching. I like search engine optimization. I, I really liked it. And so I ended up stumbling into the right model eventually. I just don't know if it was the fastest way to get there. I appreciate your transparency and your honesty, man. Uh, it's quite refreshing in this world, as you know. A lot of marketers wanted to make themselves look better than they actually are. While a story like you, like yours, is much more be uh, believable and much, I think, much more authentic, and that people with actually listening to this right now would want to do the same. 
uh, as soon as the, this episode is over. But before that, I have three questions to ask you um, before I let you go. So the first one being, uh, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? And my co-founder, Eduardo, made us do this. He, he was a content marketer at Teachable and um, before kind of making the jump. And they did a lot of this that was really helpful. And I hated it at the beginning, but it was kind of overemphasizing your customer avatar and customer interviews. And actually, Airbnb was really good about this as well. I um, played a lot of video games as a kid. Did you play video games at all in the 90s? Uh, computer games, anything like that? A lot, yeah. yes. Yeah, me, me as well. And so I think part of why I got into search engine optimization was it felt like a video game. It felt like an RPG, right? Like looking at analytics, looking at rankings, you know, looking at all these stats. It felt like I was playing a video game. And for a lot of the time, I always looked at it like numbers on the screen, right? And I sort of, you know, optim level up my character and, and things like that. Uh, what Eduardo made me do that I absolutely hated but ended up being really valuable was, and this is going to sound dorky and cliche, but we really humanized a lot of what we did, right? We, we customer interviews, calling people up, asking them what their problems were, talking to them, like, why did you sign up? How are you using the product? What sucks? What's good? And it, Airbnb again was really good about this as well. They have physical places in the building where people come in, they do the um, you know, the eye tracking stuff, interviews, what, do, why are you planning your family vacation? You know, wh what, you know, what is your thought process while you're, you're going to propose to your girlfriend in this villa, right? And things like that. And like, it makes it so much more real, so much more than numbers on the screen. Right. And so, uh, by humanizing it and getting on the phone with your customer, again, something 99% of people won't do getting on the phone with your customer talking about their problems, asking them why they paid their hard-earned money to you and what you're solving. And then it just becomes a little bit more real, like you are actually solving their problem. I mean, like there's just fascinating examples. Someone signed up because they run a small agency. They don't want to train their new hires and they want to spend more time with their kid. We're like in a weird way, we're, you know, getting, helping someone spend... We're the babysitter. I'm, I'm thinking we're a search engine optimization training course. We're no, we're, we're we're giving this guy more time with his kid, and so it just becomes more real. Um, so yeah, long answer to your question, overemphasizing developing your customer avatars, and 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 it kind of comes back to the human component, which is getting face to face or at least on the phone with them and figuring out their problems and putting a little bit more emotion into the data. I'm so glad you mentioned this. And I'm kind of surprised I mean, you're mentioning this because, yeah, coming from someone who says that, you know, his business is almost fully automated via email list and like doing deals and stuff. It's good to hear that you don't forget like what marketing foundations are truly, truly are. So turning numbers on an Excel spreadsheet or, or, or from HREF or Google Analytics into full life stories of people, like the way you just mentioned this, this, this person running a digital agency who needed more time to, to spend with their kids. Therefore, they bought the, the course. It's already a headline in the making, right? You can already use that. You can use a picture of it. It's so much easier than looking at fucking conversion rate all over like every day on Google Analytics. So we actually didn't talk about this before the interview and you came up with something that I say every single fucking interview that I can when I can, which is talk to your fucking customers. They hold the answers. So thank you for that. What are the top three resources you'd recommend our listeners today? So it could be podcasts, could be conferences, events, books, whatever you want. Uh, so yeah, just some of the tools we're using. We love Ahrefs is a great one. We're using a lot of the automations in Drip, although Drip has had some fumbles the last couple months. So I don't know if I want to fully recommend them right now. Unfortunately, I really hope they turn that around. We really like Write Message. Um, Write Message is a is a great tool. Um, a lot of the a lot of the copy on our site is all around write message and we customize it for the, the customer avatar. Those are specific ones that I really like. Um, Hotjar, we use Hotjar, <laughs> which is great. I'm trying to think of some other ones that might be really good for your audience. Some other ones are a little bit more boring. They probably know keyword research tools. We really like kwfinder.com if you're just getting started to do um, really in-depth keyword mapping and figure out what your whole content strategy is. Um, 
And it's in general as a tactic, we've actually kind of become like a media video and webinar company. We do a lot of live webinars and a lot of partnership webinars as well. This has been a great tactic for us along, along the exact same lines. We've been emailing big companies and saying, Hey, we want to do a, a ton of value for your users just for the visibility and to get the email lists. And sometimes the, the offer we did one, for example, with ConvertKit, where we, you know, uh, we come on, do an hour worth of value, and then the offer at the end is to enroll in ConvertKit. There's no, there's no enrolling in in our product or anything like that, but it pushes us into an entire new audience, and we're doing this with a lot of a lot of uh, um, other email service providers now as well. Thanks for that. Um, again, Tommy, you've been you've been great. I appreciate how transparent you were, how honest you were, how authentic you were. I think a lot of people learned a lot from you. Keep doing it. Keep sharing stuff. I know as you get busier or this, the business will be more successful, keep sharing your failures and mistakes with people. Cause I think, I think it's, it's true. Uh, like that's what leaders, that's what leaders do. So thanks for inspiring people to do uh, what you're doing as well. Where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you? Yeah, Louis, thanks a lot, man. Yeah. Clickminded.com is our site. On Twitter, I'm at Tommy Griffith, and we just launched these new, very dorky, you said you played video games um, back in the day. We launched these very dorky digital marketing and SEO strategy guides. They're like these 8-bit retro um, strategy guides. Those are free. Um, you can check those out on the site as well. Yeah, and, and you've written a lot about your experience. If folks search for Click Mining blog, you'd see a few of the posts you've posted and that inspired uh, this interview today. So Tommy, once again, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns- unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet. And we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, came through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, 
Thank you so much. See you on the other side.